Marty Friedman is one of the most unique, engaging and adventurous musicians to ever pick up an electric guitar. Marty has profoundly influenced musicians over the years, from the 80s when he teamed up with fellow guitarist Jason Becker in Cacophony to his time in Megadeth in the early 90s where he contributed to some of their most seminal albums. Marty moved to Japan in 2003 and has since pursued a soloed career and is now a much in demand guitar player, TV show host and is a national celebrity of sorts. A couple of years ago Marty was officially recognized by the Japanese government as an ambassador of Japanese heritage. In the last 10 years Marty has released a trilogy of albums, the Tokyo Jukebox volumes, where he covers popular Japanese songs but rearranged Marty's style. The albums while they retain their melodic style clearly has a Friedman watermark all over it. In this conversation with Marty, he reflected on his much written about cross-continental life, discussed the Tokyo Jukebox trilogy and his efforts in taking Japanese music to the west. We also look back at his live show in India, his approach to playing and collaborating with Indian musicians and a whole lot more. I I want to talk about Tokyo Jukebox. It's the third installment, right, in in the trilogy. Um can you just talk about the various iterations of Tokyo Jukebox and how we got to uh, uh through volume 3? Yeah, well it started um innocently enough um there's a magazine in uh, Japan called Nikkei Entertainment mm-hmm. and I guess it's like a people magazine it's a very mainstream type of thing but uh they were doing features on me quite a bit um in like 2008 2009 mm-hmm. and so many readers wrote in and they kept saying they wanted me to do covers of Japanese songs and then the staff at the magazine said well why don't we just put a poll in the magazine and see which songs they want you to cover and then uh if you're interested in making an album we can talk to the labels about that and my label Avex was really into the idea and I was excited and so they did just that and the readers listed up all of these songs and it just happened to be a lot of the songs i really was going to do anyway because mm-hmm. i liked them anyway so it just was a perfect choice of songs and the first tokyo jukebox album was just insane amount of uh uh arranging because mm-hmm. you know i love the songs so there's really nothing to do to make them better so you have to completely destroy them and find little bits of the essence of them that I can bring out and do something of my own with and that's how the record came out and um it Tokyo Jukebox 2 is kind of the same thing it was like uh uh you know people were enjoying the first one it did really well for me inside of Japan and uh, Tokyo Jukebox 2 got some got me to tour outside of Japan with it and took your know, jukebox 3 has been the best received one of all three of them mm-hmm. but unfortunately I haven't been able to tour outside of Japan with it because of everything but I did get to tour Japan with the record and I did a lot of really nice press so like whenever it's safe to tour outside of Japan I'm just going to take this record on the road to other countries and hopefully India as well because yeah I loved playing there in, uh, two years ago mm-hmm. but but on the on the face of it marty uh, are these are these technically complicated or deep songs to play the way that i've arranged them they definitely are mm-hmm. uh, 
the original versions vary. I mean, they're, most of it is pretty much straight pop songs. Um, but a straight pop song in Japan can have many, many nuances and uh, many unique things that I could choose to leave in the song or change or or bring out or not bring out. So there's a lot of decisions in the arranging process. But by the time the thing's done, it sounds like it's just another one of my solo records, really. So a lot of people around the world, not inside Japan, have never heard the originals. So they just think it's just my original music because it sounds like, you know, Inferno or Wall of Sound or anything that I would have put out. Um, and eventually they might discover, like you did, they might discover Japanese music from it. And that's great. But a lot of people outside of Japan just don't care about the Japanese music, but they might be my fans and, and they'll discover it. They'll discover new things through it. So um, it is quite complex and quite, I think it'd be difficult for people outside of my little circle of band musicians and people I work with. I think it might be difficult to uh, discern what it is I'm doing, but um, you know, it, it's not too bad it's it's interesting because um, you know one it was one of the reasons why you did these songs is it also because you want to kind of take japanese music to the west in a sense or do you want to expose it to the mainstream yeah definitely um you know it's like showing your record collection to somebody you know you're obviously a big music fan yeah. so you know the joy there you go. Yeah, sure. you know what I'm saying? You got some you go. crazy stuff there. Yeah. So you know so, the joy, you know, yeah, there you go. of showing your records. You want yeah. to show your record collection to people. And what better way to do that is than with actually making my own music out of it. So it's kind of like that pleasure, but putting it through my own musical filter, if you know what I mean, instead of just saying, picking out songs and say, hey, check this out. I kind of yeah. take it to a different level. And so I get the joy out of that, of being kind of a bridge between my music and, and the music that's in my album collection. You know, it's kind of a tricky way to show people, you know, a tricky way to get them in there. But has that worked, Marty? Or does somebody need to understand the culture and context of these songs because I liken it to Indian music in a sense. I think there's a lot of similarities between um, Japanese music and Indian music as in the, it's very melody driven. Um, right. Uh, yes. So, so even if you take Indian film music, for example, does somebody on the outside of it need to understand the culture and the context to kind of get it? Um, do, do you think that would be true? I don't think you need to understand the context and the culture to enjoy it. But if you understand that culture a little bit, it's going to make you enjoy it deeper. Um, to some people who don't understand or don't know anything about Japanese culture, it might be just so overwhelming. I mean, it really is just, there's a lot of melodic motifs that Western people have never heard before. And there's just a lot of conceptual things inside the music that just sound like it's attacking your senses. And it might attack your senses in a really good way. I mean, that's when I didn't know anything about Japanese music, that's when it really impacted me the most. I'm like, what the hell is going on? This is 
this is an assault of my senses. I really love this. Um, so it depends, you know, some people might like that. Some people just, whoa, it's over their head. But um, that's kind of one thing about Indian music that I really like is it just seems like it's from a completely different world than I grew up with. It, that, that's what makes it enjoyable to me. And then when I went to India, um, well, even before then, I worked with Indian musicians before, and I sort of got a little, um, a slight bit of knowledge of the Indian music. The more I understand it, the farther deep I can go into enjoying it. But the first impact came when I knew nothing of it. So uh, it kind of opens up a whole new world of stuff, which I really like. Yeah. Was it was it easier for you to come to uh, India for the first time when you played a couple of years ago in India? I'm guessing that was the first time you played in India, right? Uh, yeah. Does the fact that you have an open mind to a lot of these things, did that help you or did, did the experience overwhelm you? No, it totally helped me. I was looking forward to it so much. Um, you know, it just the chance to come to India is not very often. And I've had a couple offers before and scheduling or whatever reason it didn't happen. And this time it was finally set in stone was going to happen. I was so excited and um, it just completely met all my expectations. And I met so many wonderful people and wonderful musicians. Um, Yogi from Pineapple Express, I assume you know who that is. Um, he gave me his CD and it just blew my mind completely. As soon as I got back to Japan, I got in touch with him. I'm like, dude, you're going to have to teach me some of this stuff because it's too insane. And he did. He sent me sheet music and um, he just really was completely friendly and such a sweet guy. We worked on a couple little things together. And, um, you know, those are the experiences that, you just are so happy to have and makes you grow as a musician. And mm -hmm. as a matter of fact, on Tokyo Jukebox 3, I was really right in the middle of that influence. So especially on the song Kazuga Fuiteru, I was trying to like rip off a little bit of Yogi's mojo on that, you know, very poorly, but just a little bit. The way he connects like parts from one to the other is very unique. And I thought if I did that, it would give a really nice flavor to what I was doing. So I tried a very most basic version of what he did. He's so completely deep into his music. I could never copy it properly, but just a little essence of that went into my music. So going to India was a definitely good influence on my music. Beautiful. And you also have Keshav and Anup who played, Keshav from Sky, Sky Harbor who played uh, on the album, right? He didn't play on Tokyo Jukebox 3. On, was it on 2 that he played? On 2. He played on Tokyo Jukebox 2 and he also played on uh, my Inferno album. Oh yeah, Inferno, yeah. Yeah, he just killed it. He did such a great job. Yeah. Mm. So, so on Jukebox 3, the first track... Um, is it Makanaide? Is that how you pronounce it? That's it. That's the best. That's the best pronunciation of any non-Japanese I've heard yet. Thank you. Every interview they butcher it, and that's okay. But it, you sound like you got it perfect. Thank you. So, so can you talk a little bit about that track? I know that track has a special cultural significance. Um, you know, is it also 
did you also pick it as the first track because of the times we live in? Um, can you talk a little bit about that song? Yeah, the song Makinaide, literally it means don't lose. Loosely it means don't give up or keep keep going, keep fighting. Mm -hmm. It's that kind of message. But the original song is just like this light pop song. And I wanted to, uh, you know, make it really heavy and make it really uh, kind of a tear-jerking kind of song, you know. And at the time I was considering doing it, it wasn't all about you know, COVID and all this virus stuff. It was just about having a song with a message that all Japanese people know. It's a household name song. And I just thought I would do my own version of it. And then, you know, as I started working on it, you know, the whole world seemed to need this message more and more. And um, it kind of worked out that when, when I finished the song and wanted to do a video for it, everybody was doing like video collaborations like we're on zoom now and stuff like that and um it was a perfect idea to get people from all around the entire world to join the music video and i had them play one of my guitar parts yeah, everyone everyone from my fan group got like a demo of me playing the part for them to play and they all learned it and people from every country wrote something in their language in the video and it's just such a wonderful experience and you know you got to give people things to do when you can you know a lot of people at that time were stuck at home and i thought if i could give something to do to these people including myself i mean i was locked in the studio the whole time so you know a little project is fun so everybody learned the song and they did such a great job playing it and hamming up for the video and uh, so uh it came out really well because of all the people in the fan group that uh, participated yeah it was a beautiful video um jason becker was in it as well yeah yeah you know it's not easy for him to uh to uh you know participate in every single thing that comes up you know he gets so many requests for this and that and, you know he's such an inspirational figure um but he did his thing for my video and it just put a very nice exclamation point at the end of the video. Yeah, it was really very, very touching. Thank you very much. There, there was another song um, on the album called A Perfect World. Um, and that is a cover of a song you did a couple of years ago, right? Yes. Yeah, uh -huh. self-cover. Um, mm -hmm. I, yeah, I wanted to do one of my own songs, you know, and... Um, so I, it was a vocal song and it stands out because it's the one song with vocals, but uh, the original was sung by uh, the singer of Man With A Mission, a guy named John Kenjani. And he's got a very distinct low voice. So I thought, let's just kill it and put a high voice, a feminine voice on this thing and really gave it a new, new life. And uh, this time we did a really nice video for it and mm -hmm. singer was a girl named alpha kune and uh i love it. it it really came out great yeah great song and the last song on the album is the uh it was an official japanese heritage song right yes what was that like putting that together i know your wife played cello on it yes um right. that was a collaboration with the tokyo philharmonic orchestra and um since i became an ambassador of japan heritage 
the Japanese government commissioned me to compose a theme song for like certain events, you know, um, banquets and political mm -hmm. events and things having to do with Japan heritage, government events. And I thought it was just the biggest responsibility ever, especially as a foreigner, to do that. And um, yeah, so I wrote the piece of music and I um, had it arranged for orchestral instruments. And uh, my wife is in the Tokyo Philharmonic and she played cello and and uh, we recorded it. And it was just, a, it, it took a lot of uh, sleepless nights. I was like up five imagine. days in a row. Um, but uh, when it was all done, I was just very concerned that the people were going to turn it down. I thought they were going to say, well, it's okay, but we're going to have someone else do it. That was my biggest fear. So I just wanted to hit a home run and I tried my best and luckily it worked out okay. Yeah, it was, uh, it was beautiful. But what was it like, uh, Marty, putting the album together during the pandemic? Uh, was that hard? Actually, it was very good um, for me. I lucked out. You know, some people are lucking out from the pandemic, depending on what your job is. I mean, a lot of people in remote communications are having a great time in their work. And imagine the people who sell masks. You know, there's a lot of people, you know, it's not nice to benefit off this, but it just by the way things worked out, certain people are benefiting and I have definitely benefited because um, I was in the studio and it wasn't my home studio. I was in an actual studio, but there was only three people there, myself, my tech and the engineer. So we were quarantined for a couple months in the studio. I was completely focused and got my work done really well. And I had less outside work. Usually, you know, my manager, one thing, I love him, but he tax on any work that comes up. So if I'm re recording in the studio, I'll have to leave in the middle of it and do something else and have a meeting or, or do some kind of filming or recording elsewhere. Always some other bullshit I have to do while I'm recording. But this time there was such little other work going on. I was just so focused and I was like, this is the way to record. And another plus was since the pandemic happened, all the musicians, the top A-list people and people in recording business, they're kind of out of work. Yeah. So you can get people on the phone and get people to do something right away. And you get all the A-list people. And I had these great, I had five great keyboard players, the best players. And they just could work right away and like send me their tracks right away. It's like I had all these great people and a new played drums on it and it was just like a scheduling dream. It was paradise. Everybody was, oh, yeah, let's do it. I'm ready. Let's go now. So uh, I kind of benefited from all of the things that, that normally you don't have in the, without the pandemic. Yeah. But, um, you know, also the other aspect I want to touch upon is the album cover. Mm. I think in Japan, I don't know, do they call it visual key? Is it, is it called visual key? Visual K. K. Okay. Uh, so how did that come about? Because it's a very elaborate, you know, very visually driven um, album cover. And, and another interesting thing I was reading was that, you know, especially in Japan, uh, CD sales seem to dominate. Stre streaming is not as big. 
so w- w- was that also a reason why for the elaborate album cover uh no um i just wanted to do a cover that i thought topped the first two jukebox records those first two uh it's just such a wonderful graphic piece of work i mean it wasn't yeah. photoshopped that's the point um they actually did it and they did it two years apart it was just a fantastic piece of graphic work it reminded me of those album covers in the 70s and so i didn't want to do the same thing again mm-hmm. um plus it was like nine years later so i really wanted to move it up a, a notch and do something more challenging so i had the same team the same graphic team same record label and um we just put our heads together and they put that together uh, and uh i was very conscious of i didn't want to look silly because i think it really can very be easy to look silly as a foreigner in a japanese traditional outfit um it might be the same in india as well you know a lot of tourists do that and it's fun and all that but i wanted to make sure it didn't look like that so uh, that was a very big concern and i think they pulled it off yeah yeah but uh, how is it for you marty how is it that you have to do you know it's not just the music you have to think about right so in the west it's all about getting on these playlists and spotify and streaming and all of that and in japan it's still you know physical sales so how does that play out for you does that make it hard for you that it's not just the music that you have to think about now you have this whole marketing piece to think about oh it's always been that way um and it's not only japan i mean the album was released worldwide so all of that streaming stuff and all of that uh social media timing and all that publicity that had to happen for all the other countries as well and japan streaming is also a thing i mean it's not losing to cd sales it's just cd sales in japan are much more than in other countries that's it yeah um but you know the whole cycle it's a lot of work and and um it's just a necessary evil you want to do the best that you can and i'm just glad glad, glad that people like you are interested in talking to me about it and uh you know present my music to people from all different parts of the world um you know i am really not the biggest social you know there's people who are masters at social media i'm just not um i do the best i can um but my effort goes like completely into the music and everything else that if it happens it's great mm-hmm. but the music the recording of the music and the presentation i mean the album covers i mean i don't know how long i mean you hold up an album from like the past of my career i've had a lot of really shitty album covers <laughs> in in uh, you know my teenage years and and early 20s and stuff so once i started to get good album covers i believe it happened around loudspeaker loudspeaker was my first really solid good album cover i loved it and then once i started working with proper graphic designers with imagination and and talent and vision and actually who listen to the fucking record you know what i mean and really can translate the music to a graphic idea then i started my level of graphic awareness became much higher and if you look at loudspeaker and then you look at inferno those were master pieces of work that the graphic designers did 
And so I really got in tune with that. And um, so that's, I really, really care a lot about that now. When I was a kid, I mm-hmm. didn't care at all, um, as you can see from the album covers. But um, now I, I, I'm very strict about that just as much as the music. And, and I think that shows, right? Because one, the album cover is absolutely fantastic, right? I can't wait to get a copy so of the vinyl. Uh, because of the album cover and also I think living in Japan there's so much emphasis on you know just design and you know comics and all of that so I think it makes uh, a lot of sense yeah yeah and believe it or not I mean my jacket's cool but if you look at some of the work of the people who did my album cover my album cover is pales to what they do I mean they just go way outside there way outside um but they nailed my image to what the album was perfectly. Yeah. So uh, I think they did perfectly, but it's just, a, it's a different level of imagination. I mean, uh, that I've been very lucky to work with some super people on that. Yeah, I know. I get that because, uh, you know, I watched a YouTube, I think it was a concert of a band called Perfume. Yes. Perfume. Their, li- their live shows are something else. And just, it's in, I think it was a company called Rhizomatics that had done, uh, their live shows. The production yeah. was absolute. I mean, it was like nothing I'd ever seen. Yeah. Well, I first saw Perfume, I thought this is the end of rock music because first of all, there's no band. Second of all, they lip sync everything. And third of all, you don't care that they're lip syncing because the low end and the beat is so hard. It felt like ACDC on steroids I was enjoying it just as much as like a big loud ACDC concert, but there's three girls lip syncing. Why, why is this happening? Um, And I thought that was the end, but it wasn't the end, but like, I was very happy watching them. So it was a very, it's a very unique phenomenon. Yeah. It's amazing because in the early days, I remember listening to loudness and X Japan and all that. And when I saw baby metal in Singapore, uh, it's aggressive music, right? But lyrically, it's just very happy and poppy and all of which is not stereotypically, stereotypically how metal is. So it's, uh, it's, it's quite a cultural change in a sense, right? Yeah, I mean, well, metal, you know, has gone through a long history of uh, lyrics, all almost interchangeable and they have to be dark and they have to be kind of scary and sort of negative and protesting everything and it kind of works with the sound of aggressive music but we've kind of really all heard that for a long time and why wouldn't it work with something with a much simpler happier and maybe a more positive outlook why wouldn't it work and actually it does happen to work so that kind of gave the sound of metal a few more decades of life, I believe. Yeah. Um, and yeah, uh, yeah it's, it just works. It just works. You know, there's another Indian band you should check out if you haven't. They're called uh, Bloody Wood. Um, they take film music, uh, Indian film music, and they do heavy metal versions of it with Indian instruments. Oh, I bet that's great. What's it called? Bloody Wood. I'll have to check that. Yeah, check yeah. it out. Or, or I'll send you a link to it. Yes, so, please do. Yeah, I, I don't think they had a label a couple of years ago, but built a following entirely on social media, doing covers of Indian um, film music. 
and then went i think and played at wacken open air and they were due to play at bloodstock and sold out a entire europe tour on the back uh, of a following they built on uh, social media it's a great story oh uh, that's very interesting i'm sure that is music that is not easy to cover it's not yeah and i think like i said to to uh, interestingly uh, you know i think a lot of people in the western world seem to have related to the sound maybe not to the lyrical content but the music either just makes you feel happy or you can relate to it so um, and plus it's fresh it's fresh yeah, exactly yeah. so it's like a new sound and at some level i feel like metal needed that uh, you know sound to kind of evolve so it's quite I fascinating agree. uh quite fascinating to listen to it but what is the music scene like in japan uh marty are are international artists big here uh in japan as well it's like this it's like 80% of what people listen to is domestic japanese artists and the other 20% is everywhere else which is kind of a strange percentage it's very japan is very self sufficient when it comes to music but there are big artists that do the big festivals and they do tours of japan yeah um but for the most part japanese music dominates here and um it's just a very very healthy scene of music you know there's no real genre rules you know you could make your living playing pop and then do an album that's got a whole bunch of dark stuff on it and your fans are not going to go away you know people are more interested in the artist and their uh, interpretation of whatever it is they want to do rather than just the genre for the most part mm-hmm. so it's very liberating for musicians and artists here and i think that's what drew me to the place that's what i like about it mm-hmm. like i was telling you right so uh, you know my interest in japan i started watching i've never visited but i've I was, i've been watching all of these youtube videos of people who just walk around japan uh, you know filming everyday life there's no there's no commentary it's just the sight sight and sounds of japan it's absolutely fascinating as a culture uh, the similarities with indian culture and also just the obsession with cleanliness and all of that it's it's uh, quite fascinating to watch oh what what's the biggest similarity so i think you know from what i've seen uh, you know people before they enter other people's homes they leave their footwear outside yeah they do that in india too oh it's for for, for centuries oh well thank you very much man I hope you can come to Japan sometime. It's really a you know probably feel like to you when I went to India how I felt, you know, it's whoa. That's it for this week's episode of Tales from the Road. Tales from the Road is brought to you by the concert photographer and moving pictures media. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify or Google Play. Thank you for listening.